Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending March 20. Uh, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast, you'll hear. Well, Dr. Vyom Sharma from Radiotherapy uh, gave us the latest and his thoughts on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we also investigated Jez's prize zucchini. Um, it's 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 massive, and uh, we also looked at dinner. Dinner dinner's become an important part of people's lives mm. as they lock down, and we had a look at what was up in people's kitchens that night. Uh, also, we got to chat to uh, Justin Digger Calvary. He gave us the top three easy vegetables to grow right now. Uh, we also got to chat to uh, Stephanie Convery about her book After the Count, and. Breakfasters Friday, we ended the show with the Breakfasters Talent Show. Beautiful stuff. Triple R. Keeping a close eye on everything COVID-19 is general practitioner and radiotherapy presenter on Triple R, Dr Vyom Sharma, who's very kindly agreed to uh, speak with us on the line now. Dr Sharma, a virtual elbow tap to you. Uh, do you do? <laughs> uh, now, the Australian Government's Chief Medical Officer, Brennan Murphy, was on TV yesterday with Health Minister Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison's also, uh, he also held a press conference yesterday. In your view, is the Federal Government providing enough information to the public? Uh, I mean, to say no, they aren't providing enough information, it doesn't even begin to tell the story of what's going on here. Uh, not they're not just slow with providing the information. They're not just miscommunicating it. Uh, they are misunderstanding it. They are ignoring things that the experts are screaming in their faces. And, and they're, they're often just deliberately not disclosing information to the public. And the flow-on effect of this is that you know, our public's understanding right now, from, from when I'm talking to, to patients about their understanding, talking to people in the street, hearing from friends of friends, is and the, the reality is, is really sobering. People's understanding is now so far behind where it needs to be that we have already cost tens of thousands of lives. And it sounds like, what are you saying? There's only 300 cases. Every specialist in infectious disease, every epidemiologist and every serious doctor in the country knows this. And yet there's such a gulf that the government has created between where the knowledge needs to be and it is. Average person on the, the street thinks that it's overblown, they think some people think it's a hoax. Uh, an essential poll done last week shows that 26% of people think they're not going to get the virus. And, and you know, the people need to be told, like, some very important things right now, that the virus will kill if we are lucky, if we are lucky, tens of thousands of people. Everyone is at risk, not just the old and vulnerable. And we know the solution, which is social distancing, and we have proof that it works. So uh, what... what should each person be doing uh, today, this week, to make a difference to the spread of the virus? So, I mean, there are things individuals should be doing, but there are things that need to happen at a level far above the individual. Uh, but the, the overarching principle we're talking about is social distancing, creating distance between individuals, groups, institutions, whatever else, so we can slow down the transmission of the virus. So you know, we are talking about, uh, you know, I guess we're starting at an individual level, 
being conscious of this of the things that you're you're touching that other people may be touching. So everything tiny from using the keys to press the the elevator button to to, to being very conscious of that tram handle that is plastic on which germs can survive for for up to for this virus can survive for up, up to 72 hours that you might be uh, transmitting to other places. Um, we need to, uh, but it really needs to go above the level of the, the individual. But I, I suppose if we're going to talk about the individual, you need to be particularly careful uh, in terms of uh, thinking about any uh, older uh, people and any vulnerable people uh, health-wise uh, who might have been to, uh, contract this virus to whom the outcomes are just going to be like catastrophic. But, you know, the thing is, I could go on for ages about all the hygiene measures, but it'd just be a, it'd be a waste of time. The, the one thing that people need to understand right now is that if we act and think as individuals, we will fail, and if we think as a community, we will win. And this is what Scott Morrison should have been telling us at that press conference uh, you know, a few days ago. There's a lot to be done at an individual level, institutional level and government level. A lot of things are going to need to change, but that's what we need to do. We need to come together. So what are some of the things at an institutional government level that you would like to see enacted that so far have not been? The, look, the thing is, the, we are now, as a government, like playing catch-up. I've just heard that the government is going to be recommending that people stop collecting in places like libraries, etc. But you know, we, we, we stopped uh, the, the, the Formula One at the very last moment, and it was just a PR save. But... These, the large things that need to happen, which is these large gatherings of stopping sporting events and Hillsong events in Sydney uh, and, uh, and what's hopefully going to need to happen very soon, uh, will, will happen very soon actually, right, uh, well, which is the closure of universities and, and swimming pools, etc. Like the right time to do this was about a week or two ago. Mm. Like We are well behind the curve. So again, the, the, the broader concept of social distancing being uh, that we need to shut down or at least really limit things uh, where people are going to be gathering. So even public transport is something that might need to be limited here, not just schools and workplaces uh, and universities and pools and everything else. We We need to rethink everything right now. What about watching the spread of COVID-19 globally? Is there what's frustrating for you to observe as a general practitioner? I think what's really frustrating is that we've actually got so much hope because we know the things that are working right now. So China has done, after obviously a cataclysmic disaster, a a good job of reining things in. South Korea right now is a shining example of someone who, you know, basically was incredibly unlucky through a a huge amount of spread who's getting things under control with uh, social distancing and quarantining of people and, and excellent monitoring. And yet, despite this, we are seeing the same mistakes repeated over and over again, which is governments being very late to pull the trigger on social distancing. Uh, The USA, of course, is just going to be a horror show. Um, And the problem is that in Australia, we are playing catch-up. The the chief medical officer was talking uh, on Insiders about uh, social distancing here being preemptive. No, preemptive would have been two weeks ago. This thing grows exponentially. Uh, We are now playing catch-up. So it's now up to the individuals to lead the government here and which they are already doing. Workplaces are being very responsible right now, getting people to work from home. We need to assume the leadership right now. And not just that, we need to, to hold our leaders accountable. That's the only way we're going to get this under control. 
Uh, there's a lot of confusion within, which, as you've, for all the reasons that you've just stated, there's a lot of confusion within the community as well about how this virus affects you, what to do if you feel sick. There's, and I know we've gone over some of those things before, but as it stands, has um, the the means in which people need to be tested or what they have to, what's required for them to be tested changed at all over the last week with all of these kind of advancements? That's right. We, in fact, uh, general practitioners have been issued a letter stating that we need to really limit the population from now on that we will be testing, uh, which is just return travellers uh, and people being in contact with coronavirus, uh, like confirmed cases, and maybe just a few kind of edge cases uh, beyond that. And the reason for this is twofold. Firstly, we, like, you have to understand that, that just testing someone doesn't actually help them or save them. That's not what's going to do it. Um, what's going to, to make a difference is social distancing. And while we'd love to test everyone, we don't have the resources. Mm. We, we do not. And, and we already know, you know, thanks to just the, the ridiculousness of, of holding an F1 that even though it was cancelled last moment, we invited 300,000 people into Melbourne there, and there's large sporting events and everything happening. Basically, we already know that widespread community transmission has, has basically begun and, and the amount of testing we can do is quite limited. It's not going to help us capture it. We know what we need to do. It is social distancing. Uh, and, and the other thing is that people need to understand, what I'm really concerned about, is this almost mythology of this, uh, it's just old people are going to be affected and it's just, you know, 2% of people, you know, are going to die or, or something like that. Like, it's, this just doesn't capture what's actually happening. Everyone can be affected. And where's the best place for people to go to uh, to keep updated on information as events unfold? Yeah, so this is a bit of a tough one. So I think um, I mean, Twitter is actually by far and away the most, the fastest, most up-to-date. Uh, but now I understand, especially for new users, it's, it's a bit not user-unfriendly, I suppose. I have to say, uh, I think a lot of mainstream media is actually doing a really good job. Um, and yeah, just the irony, I guess, is that people are talking about it's a bit of a media frenzy and it's overblown. Uh, no, no, it's like most of the media is doing an incredibly good job of reporting this. Mm-hmm. And just... Before I go, can I just make the one quick point? People are always thinking that it's the old and vulnerable who are going to be harmed. When the ICUs are running at 300% capacity and and every bed is occupied by this disease, what's going to happen to the 19-year-old who's in a car accident? What's going to happen to the 15-year-old with appendicitis who needs surgery? There will not be resources. We are all in this together. We have to think together. We have to act together. It's the only way we're going to do this. We know what works. It's social distancing. Do not wait for the government. We have to lead ourselves. Okay, where can we follow you on social media to keep updated with your thoughts? Um, best place is uh, is on my Twitter, so it's uh, at uh, Dr. D-R-V-Y-O-M, uh, so at uh, D-R-V-Y-O-M. Mm-hmm. So you probably see links if you, if you check out Radiotherapy social media. Cool. Uh, you can hear Dr. Sharma on air this coming Sunday, 10am on Radiotherapy with Panel Beta and Neonatal. Thanks so much, Dr. Sharma. You're so welcome. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Um... I don't know if you saw, you did say it yesterday, I got a big zucchini. Yeah. (laughs) On your Instagram, yes. I posted on Instagram a photo of me with my big, with a big zucchini. It came from um, Kat's um, mum's garden, obviously great soil. Mm. Um, And, but here's the thing, it's, it was just like the perfect size and the perfect curve 
that it was just like I was holding a big zucchini baby. Yeah. You need to describe how big that baby is because it was big. Like a like a um, six month old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it went like yeah from like it would curve so it just went over my shoulder, and then it'd go down like to my waist, and it just it just kind of matched my. Body, like the a contour just, of your body, yeah. yeah. And I could just like Catherine came home, like, oh my god, what is that? And she gave it to me, and I was like, oh, it's very funny. Let's get a photo and stuff. And then, like, that wasn't the photo that I posted. It was just all of a sudden she was doing other things, and then I noticed that I hadn't put down the zucchini. <laughs> it was just like this. It was just really comforting. Yeah, holding this zucchini for. For a really long time. It's weird for a zucchini to feel like a vulnerable, you know, baby you can't leave unattended and also be the biggest zucchini you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Also, zucchinis have a really disturbing fleshy feel about them. Yeah. Like usually if you touch them intimately, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was smooth and it was was nice and it it made me feel, made me feel good. But do you think it's ever going to get eaten? Oh, yeah, oh, we've, yeah, we've started. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> Sorry. That's so upsetting. Yeah, you ain't your zucchini baby. Yeah, yeah. So we. <laughs> I was under the impression that the bigger. Well, not the whole thing. Well, you know, obviously it's big. We'll stagger that through for the next. But isn't it the bigger week? they get, the less flavorful it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh, but it was. Kath made like a. Deli- like put other things in. We were fine. I think you all know. the fritters you could have. I know. You've been I know. prepping fritters for years. It seems like very good timing to have that much zucchini oh, available to you. Ready. Zucchini Ready. four ways. Yeah. Uh, it does kind of remind me also what you're describing as one of those comfort pillows. You know those, oh, lo- those... those long pillows that you mm. kind of wrap yourself around, which I haven't had for years. But Did you, you had one? Well, I used one once when I was staying at a friend's house and I, was, and I just thought I, I felt – I couldn't believe how comforting it really was, but it was kind of embarrassing. You wouldn't want to have one at home. Oh, no, have one at home. You wouldn't want to have one at your friend's place. Well, it was her <laughs> pillow. And yeah, I was like, enough. oh, I'm going to use this comfort pillow. And then was like, oh. I don't know. It's, it's, I find that something undignified about self-soothing. Yeah, oh, so that's really? what I mean. That's what's embarrassing about yeah, it. You feel I like find, a giant baby. I feel like a baby doing yeah. that. I feel like dummies are ridiculous, like tricking someone into thinking that it's – a oh, nipple, for instance. Yeah, yeah it's so yeah. weird. Can I just say that I said to Daniel the other day, he was talking about Gabe crying, and I said, well, you know, have you using dummies? And you know, people feel different ways about dummies. Mm. And he's like, oh, no, it's just tricking him that's a nipple. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. And it's actually yeah. the literal point of a dummy. But then, they, you know, he falls out of love with the real nipple or <laughs> nipples become cheap. Uh, and then there's I've a had family members that haven't used dummies. Like I had a, like a cousin that, yeah, he was like, if the baby's crying, it's mm. crying for a reason. Yeah. So, well, but I even resent. I don't resent. That's too strong. But bouncing, it's like, oh. why can't we just sit here in peace? Like, what difference? <laughs> Jesus. Does the, what difference does the bouncing make? Are, are you when you say why and can't we sit here in peace? Is that to to no, the world but, or to game? No, it's it's like. <laughs> Like you stand up and bounce. Like yeah. standing up and bouncing is more effective than sitting down and bouncing. I'm like, what's wrong with the sit and bounce? Oh. The sit and bounce is good. My sister wouldn't let us bounce at all. She said that it established a false sense of security. And, and so every time, you know, actually you'd pick up a baby. I'd pick up my just... nephew and I'd just start rocking. She'd be like, don't rock the baby. Really? Like, that child, yeah. 
And so I was always really stiffly holding the child because I was terrified. Oh my god! Rocking the child. And is a rocking chair for babies or for the mum? Yeah, or is it? Because I, I was always under the impression it was for like just old women, and I was always worried about putting my finger underneath it and getting yeah, crushed. Yes, but uh, but now now it looks got like visual. Ne- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now it looks like How it's to hold it? a baby. Yeah, perhaps it is. It's nice. How much do you not see a rocking chair anymore? Never. Yeah. I, and I'm deter- I want to get. I asked if I could get one Are because they- I'm like <laughs> this because sitting and rocking because Jessie sits and rocks. It's fun. Well, with the baby, she looks like she's going to throw her hip out. Well, uh, well, she's like she's. It's like she's on a ship that's about to capsize. <laughs> so no, uh, she's allowed to rock. She can rock, but it's she can rock seated, but it's the bouncing because I uh, rocking yeah. bores me. Uh, but the bouncing is what I do in it. He he seems to know that we're not standing up. Oh. So I can't replicate but the standing you, up bounce experience. When you stand up, do you walk around and bounce, or do you just two stand hours? And bounce? I was walking around and bouncing. So you can't walk really? and sit at the same time. It's the walking around that he likes. Maybe, but I think I'm only walking around because I get so bored just standing there. Yeah, maybe two hours. I'm walking around, and then I'm like, I suppose I can't listen to something. Two hours. What's he, he doing for that whole time? Oh, he's like looking around and, you What's know. What's he meant to be doing? He's meant to be sleeping? He should be What's asleep. Oh, okay. God. And then you put him down, he starts to cry. Yeah, all this shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Burt on parenting. Oh, yeah, all this shit. <laughs> Triple. Ah. I think it's time that um, we all... Um, helped each other um and we're going to start with what's for dinner tonight uh so um here's the thing like text in what you're having for dinner share your ideas of how you know we're all isolated we're most, a lot of us are staying at home uh things aren't might not be available that you would like to to get uh so you can send us a text of um some ideas uh zero four double six nine eight one oh two seven um i you know especially need help like i said to kath yesterday <laughs> we're Daniel, you're an all right cook. Uh, no, no. no, okay, incorrect. yeah, we're all the we're all. <laughs> I thought you yeah. were. Oh, in a pinch. Yeah, but Jessie does the. Yeah, yeah, she's. And does she like cooking? She does. Yeah, yeah. she's so much better at it yeah. that it's it would be just an insult. I would. Yeah, if. Yeah, I'm the same. Like it's, I kind of because Kath loves it and she's very good at it. It's um I've haven't had to deal with it. Yeah. And so yesterday when she went to the supermarket, uh, I suggested to her that she just stocks up on frozen pizzas in case we need to, you know, there's nothing available. Just say, just go to the frozen department yeah. and stock up there. That's my idea yeah. of coping. Well, because you're, you're a classy prepper. Yeah. <laughs> her idea of coping was to get more staple items. <laughs> Because maybe I might get some pasta and, and things like that so we can, mm. you know, make, you know, things that last a few days rather than just eat a frozen pizza every night. I'm like, well, that's a, that's a very, yeah, that's yeah. A very good suggestion. Um, yeah, so- we're trying to cook on, like, on mass at the moment and I need help because we're not doing a very good job of it. Like slow cooking, like we did a slow Moroccan slow cooked vegetable thing 
on and Sunday. Long, yeah. But it only it's lasted two nights. Well, that's pretty that's good. It. Is it? Yeah, I, I feel think. like it should have Is lasted us a, a week. Like that was the point of it. And I need. No, advice on how to cook things that last longer. I think you need uh, – no, I think a couple of nights is fine because you don't want to eat the same thing every night. I guess so, but I don't Do mind you? doing that. Yeah. I'm still taking advantage of restaurants while they're open. Yeah. yeah. And so I've got I've got leftover fur, oh. leftover roast lamb, which I, to be fair, we cooked. leftover fur? What a strange thing. Was it takeaway? Yeah. I just oh. didn't get around to it. There's leftover roast chicken and leftover Indian, so I'm more worried about the food poisoning than anything. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> get off that food. Yeah. But Jessie, she said, no more, don't buy any more food. I've prepped too hard. Yes. Really? Mm. You're too prepared with food Well, the kitchen, the, yeah, the fridge is, I mean, it's not a giant fridge, but what there's no you, more room. Can you lend me some things? No, I yeah, sure. enough. One, one interesting tip, uh, this was Jessie's tip, really, but... Um, going to organic stores, they'll have staples that people people neglect organic yes. stores for the staples. Ah. Oh, and, and health food shops and things like That's that. Interesting. Yeah, mm. and they might be they might be a bit pricier as well, but they're 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 stocked. But you can get fresh goods. Mm. Uh, mm. Hello, Amy, who sent me in the text. I had dinner this evening in my share house with six vegans. This would be good. Massive lentil pasta sauce with heaps of veg, carrot, zucchini, mushroom, capsicum, uh, which will roll over to be used as toppings for baked potato. Oh, that's a great idea. Baked potato is a good one. Potatoes are everywhere. Oh, my God. I think I'm going to make baked potatoes tonight. We've got that um, giant zucchini, so I think we used a bit of it last night. Kath made a big pasta. This is the giant zucchini that um, is the size of a (laughs) six-month-old. Passing that down for generations. So, um, we and so Kath made a big like a, a like a mac and cheese pasta, but with like um, zucchini and uh, like capsicum and um, what uh, there was another broccoli. It's like making mac and cheese healthy, isn't it? Yeah, you know, if you say mac and cheese, it's like you're a six year old child, but if you add vegetables, you're a grown up. Yeah, it was. A, it's a grown-up mac and cheese, yeah. but gosh, it was. It's so you know, and I. It was a day that I really needed some comfort food, and it was so good. So I made mm. that and baked it as well. Bit of a pasta bake. Um, People want to lentils. Someone just sent us an actual recipe. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Someone sent us a recipe for crushed lentils with tahini and cumin. Uh, and they've sent us an image of the actual recipe, which I might even try. There you go. Uh, if anyone else has any suggestions of, uh, or just let us know what what's for dinner tonight, um, you can text us in zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. What about this? Is too is this too lowbrow for you? I'm into this. Me goring instant noodles, throw in some fresh or frozen veggies, and a fried egg. Oh. That's like the ups, the upscaling of the mac and you know cheese. Yeah. I, I did that once with some magic noodles, um, like the old style, you know. Anyway, I did that once in a share house that I was living in. I went, oh, there's some two-minute noodles back yeah. there. I'm going to use them. And then there was, I had some frozen, you know, veggies I found in the freezer. And I'm like, I'll, I'll make it healthy. I'll put a, put a few frozen veggies in there. Yeah. And then I ate it. I was like, there's something weird about this. There was something really weird. And anyway, I worked out the two-minute noodles were like five years out of date. Oh, my God. And I was violently ill oh. for the rest of the night. Wash it down with a bottle of Coke you found on the side of the road. Oh, my God. We're so desperate to save things at the moment. We made couscous the other night and Andrew's like, there's this couscous that's been open for a while. And I said, it smells a bit stale. And he goes, oh, it's all right. 
and we I cooked it and I ate it. I was like, this t- uh, this tastes like yeah. stale bread. Doesn't taste good. And then I had to make it again the next night. And he goes, just use that one again. And we kind of had a bit of a back and forth about it tasting stale. And I was like, fine. And I started cooking it. And then as I poured it out, there was all these little weevils in it. <gasps> Oh. And so I'd eaten the weevil couscous the night before and I hadn't seen them the first time. Oh, my God. And it's like this is too early in prepping for me to be eating weevil couscous. This could yeah. happen in a month and I'd be okay with it because it might be all we're down to. But do you know what? The weevils don't eat too much, so that's okay. They're eating they, the inside of my stomach Yeah, now. They, they, they left you some couscous. <laughs> weevil couscous. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop saying about dirt? Justin Digger Calvary is on the line, getting down and dirty in isolation, which isn't as salacious as it initially sounds, I promise. Digger, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. I'm out here looking at the sunrise, sitting there talking to my chickens. It's actually pretty good. Oh, oh beautiful. Is that a bird? Is that, It does sound quite idyllic. Is that, or is that... I'm, I'm not. No, this is legit. I'm literally sitting next to the chicken house with my chickens in the. Right. I saw. Is that a chirping? I thought I'd heard chirping. Is that what the? Yeah, sorry, it chicken sounds amazing. It? It's exactly how I imagined your life. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, legit. Those of you driving to work or maybe even at home, just look out to the east in the northern suburbs, and it, the sunrise this morning is amazing. Hmm. Oh, I was I just outside. I didn't even look. What an idiot! It's beautiful. Oh, yeah, well. it's beautiful. What uh, what can we do amidst all this craziness uh, to take care of ourselves and our gardens? Well, I was just thinking about it while I was you know, sitting here looking out, but, gee, the only real winner out of this has got to be the to-do list. Mm. <laughs> so there's, uh, so there's a, just a couple of uh, three little vegetables that I thought, what's the easiest sort of stuff, fairly quick turnaround, good bang for buck kind of thing. So the three that I came up with, uh, for a balanced diet, one a root system, uh, so like a root crop, um, one fruiting crop and one leaf crop. So let's start with probably the hardest of the easiest, if that makes any sense. Okay. Still pretty easy. Um, peas. It's, it's pea season, so you can do your climbing peas, snow peas, sugar snap peas, dwarf peas, all that family's time to go in right now. Pretty straightforward. Um, a decent amount of sunlight, six to eight hours of sunlight a day. Making sure, obviously, right across the board that your soil has been prepared with a bit of compost. And literally, they'll just go, within about 120 days, you'll be getting a crop. Pretty straightforward. You can, you can get them to climb up something if you want to let them climb up a tree or a fence or a trellis or something. But you don't have to. They'll just be just as happy just going along the ground because, you know, they're ground covers originally. So you don't even need to stake them. You just do as they want to do. The second one, the root crop, probably, you know, a fail-safe kind of thing, but I know it's a you know it's a crop that not everyone loves. But radishes, I love radishes. Oh. Anyone, anyone else a radish fan? Yeah, I've laid a radish for yeah, sure. I'll do it, absolutely. Yeah, why not? Yeah, no, a lot of people think are oh, too musty, but I think they're absolutely amazing, no. and the crunch is amazing. Um, and the fact that talk about a confidence booster. So best with these ones to go with. Just buy the seeds and put them straight into the ground. Don't have to do any transplanting or anything like that. Best not to disturb a little root system. So grab your seeds, agitate the soil just a little bit. Oh, sorry, a little willy wag tail just nearly hit me in the head. What's going on out there? It's God, chaos I snow <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. 
<laughs> Are you okay? Do we need to send help? <laughs> no, I'm good. Now I've got bird flu. Great. <laughs> um, so the little radishes, just sprinkle the seeds directly on the soil. Make sure it's well hydrated, so water the soil first. But, you know, with seeds, you don't really bury them too deep, just twice twice their thickness deep. So it's really just agitate the top, sprinkle them on, give them a water and, and sprinkle some mulch over it. And quick turnaround, you'll be picking radishes in about 60 to 80 days. Fantastic. So that's pretty good. They're, you know, they're crispy, aren't they? They, they, yeah, they provide a crunch to a salad. Yeah, they're amazing. And you can get them in all different sorts of shapes and colours. You can get um, Easter egg. Literally, there's one called Easter egg. And so it's a, like a little, you know, nearly golf ball-sized radish. Another oh, one called French, bre- French breakfast, which is red with a, ro- a white nose on it. So as the root elongates, it gets this white tip on it. It's a really pretty thing. It's about the size of your thumb. Don't you think that Easter egg and French breakfast is just laying it on a bit thick? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that makes it, yeah, you've got to come up with these names because a lot of people don't like it. Yeah. A little bit of a cutesy name. Still. Like Happy Easter, kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the easiest one of all that if you fail with one of these, you should probably give up um, <laughs> is Silverbeet. All that charred mm. family, the Silverbeet family. Um, again, you can buy them as seedlings or as seeds. You can sow direct, you can transplant. But these things, you know, do you know the ones I'm talking about? Some, the rainbow chard, you'll see them a lot of the time. They've got yellows and reds and pinks and all those kind of things. Mm. So it's a, it's a large, glossy leaf. Um, be ready again. You can start picking leaf by leaf in about 60 days from the time of planting um, or let them go right to the end and then they'll keep picking. You can keep pick, pick leaves off them for about five months. And this is a good bang for buck. Yeah, and so because I've never heard you recommend someone give up before, <laughs> so it's, it's good to finally have a barometer of uselessness in the garden. Is is there some sort of digger? Is there some sort of evolutionary reason why silver beet is way easier to grow than say spinach or some other silver beet related adjacent vegetable? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like with, with all plants, some of them, um, they all have their preferences, but they all have tolerance as well, just a little bit like every other organism, you know, other stuff that they'll tolerate. So being a little bit broader in the leaf, as in the thickness of the leaf, you know, they're kind of a little bit, I don't know, what's the word you could use? Leathery? Um, leathery, that's a great one. Thanks, Jez. <laughs> Thank um, you. A little bit more leathery than what a lettuce is. They can cope with a little bit more variation in temperature. So if it gets a little bit hotter, they've got a bit more moisture in the leaf to cope with it. If it gets a little bit too cold, again, they've got that leatheriness to fight off the cold. So there's that happy medium um, between a leaf vegetable that prefers low light and not getting too hot and a fruiting vegetable that likes a lot of sunlight. So I'd say give them, you know, you could give them as low as two hours of sunlight a day right through to eight hours of sunlight a day and they'll still be just as happy. All it will do will slow their growth rate down. Cool. And what do you, what's on your to-do list today? Um, well, I'm actually still working. Yep. I'm one of the few that's still working. So as of today, I, it might change tomorrow. But, um, yeah, I'm still doing a bit of teaching. So um, that's what I'll be doing. But if all goes to, you know, if I need to self-isolate or everyone shuts down, I've got a massive to-do list here. So, <laughs> uh, as, long as, as long as we keep it under uh, 10 people, I'm sure you can all come in and help me. <laughs> <laughs> See you there. Uh, thanks so much, Digger. Pleasure. Melbourne's own Triple R. 
When Australian boxer Davy Brown died in 2015 after being knocked out in the final round of a title fight, the sport came under renewed and intense scrutiny. That fatal bout also raised questions for amateur boxer and deputy culture editor of Guardian Australia, Stephanie Convery, who investigates the fight, its aftermath and the culture of this contentious combat sport in a new book, After the Count, The Death of Davy Brown. And the journalist joins us on the line now. Stephanie, thanks for speaking with Breakfasters. Hi, it's really, really glad to um, be talking to you. I'm excited. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, can you tell us about the man, Davy Brown Jr., and what it is about his story and his final fight that had such an effect on you? Well, Davy was a young father. He had two sons uh, and a, a really, really lovely wife. He had a father and a brother and a sister who all cared about him a lot. And he died after being knocked out in the final round of a title fight that he was about to win in 2015. And I think the thing that really kind of struck me about this story was it just seemed to happen out of the blue. Like, the, the story that was being told when the news reports first came out about his death was that this was a tragic accident. And anybody who's ever been involved in boxing knows that, I mean, well, any, everybody who knows about boxing knows that boxing is about hitting another person in the head. So on the face of it, like, the, the tragic accident narrative seemed to me to be a bit odd. Like, how, how is this an accident when somebody is trying to punch him? But at the same time, what really kind of dug into me was the fact that I was actually training for an amateur fight at the time. I was like pushing myself in the sport I had I had kind of not really paid that much attention to the fact that people could be seriously hurt and die in the sport so when I first heard about Davy's death it really rattled me and and yeah I tried to talk to people in the sport about it and they just sort of seemed to brush it off as though it was just one of those things and I thought this is not right we need to be talking about this uh Steph hi um when you in the book you, you speak really beautifully about uh what drew you to boxing and why you liked it. Can you um, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I took it up kind of um, by accident, like as a consequence of a knee injury from running. And it was my my physio's recommendation because it would give me some good cardio. But what I didn't kind of expect when I first started training was just how electrifying it would be like how how powerful I would feel like my body was as a consequence of this sport and I think a real part of why it is so electrifying is the violence of it and that's kind of that's kind of really confronting because obviously we all think about violence as bad but in the context of sport it can actually be exciting and that was something that I really wanted to dig into as well why do people do this sport what does it mean for our idea of violence if there are times and, and contexts in which we really get something positive out of it there was a there was an inquest into Davy Brown's death in uh, 2017 the inquest was um, can you tell us about what your impression was of that inquest and also uh having watched vision of the round 11 it's there's so many elements at play can you can you walk us through maybe some of the elements that contributed to that fatal event that night yeah, so one of the things about the inquest was it was quite long and complicated. Um, it was partly due to the fact that there were so many people involved in administering the sport and kind of being 
responsible for what happened in the ring that night. That's in the sense of like looking after the welfare of the participants, but also having some role to play in the formal administration of the game of the of the match. But there was also really critically a couple of things happened in the eleventh round. So he was knocked out in the twelfth, but in the eleventh round he was knocked down twice, and that means that he fell to his knee after a big punch at one point, and then waited an eight count. That's when the referee stands over you and counts to eight, gives you a chance to kind of recover and decide if you want to continue. And then he recovered and started fighting again, but was knocked again back into the ropes and off, like his weight was off his feet. So there are two knockdowns. Both of those things would have um, taken points off his score, but they also meant that he was concussed. So that was a really, really critical thing that came out of the inquest. Davy was concussed in that round, and as a consequence, he should not have been fighting the 12th round at all. And he couldn't defend himself when he did. It's, it's, it's quite startling footage to see him from the 11th round before he got knocked down. He, he was fighting extremely sharply. He, was, he, was, he had a lot of energy. And then in the 12th, he just he could barely even hold his hands above his like, shoulders. He was... He was like a rag doll at that point. Mm. Uh, and what you you've become quite close with some of Davy's family and uh, people in the boxing community in Sydney. What what's what's that been like in comp- compiling the book? Uh, so I have um, I had a really great relationship, particularly with Davy's wife, who has been wholeheartedly supportive of the book, um, and I've also had. Uh, developed a relationship with Davy's father. Um, other members of Davy's family haven't necessarily been so forthcoming, which has been um, difficult for the book, but it's also 100% their right to not be involved in something like this. It can be very confronting, I think, for people who have been, who, who are kind of around some, like the person who dies, their family can have very complicated feelings about things like this. And that's that's absolutely normal. Um, but it has, it has been a bit uh, awkward because I am quite critical of the way the sport has been administered over the last um, few decades in New South Wales. And that means that there are a lot of people who don't like what I have to say about this. So mm. that can be a bit hard. Is it hard for you to walk into a boxing gym now? Do people know who you are? Uh, so my current trainer is very, very supportive and has actually, you know, is reading the book and has been talking to me about it quite in depth for the last, you know, year or so. And so, go, I mean, I have been struggling to go back to the gym more generally because I find it difficult to box at the moment as a consequence of writing this book. Mm. It's not so much about the people, it's more about, like, how I feel about participating in this sport after having dealt so deeply with its worst elements. But at the same time, I haven't been able to give up my gym membership, so I'm still conflicted on yeah. this. Mm. And there's information about CT that CTE that continues to emerge. Um, can you tell us about how you think the debate's progressing and also maybe what um, fixes you, what easy fixes maybe would be possible in the arena of boxing? Yeah, so I think it's becoming clearer as the, as the evidence continues to emerge that, that chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE is a real problem for contact sports and combat sports particularly. It's, it's kind of ironic that a sport like boxing in which the primary objective is to punch the other person in the head um, is probably the least likely to talk to you about brain damage at all or take any precautions or like talk about the precautions that they're taking with regards to um, 
dangerous hits to the head. Now, I do think that one of the major problems in all sports is that while there is an acknowledgement on an administrative level that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with, the education that would actually help prevent a lot of like injuries like concussion, but also people going out to play when they are concussed or hurt in a really dangerous way is not coming down to the players themselves. So the players themselves aren't standing there going, I feel I have these symptoms. I know that they're symptoms of concussion. We need to talk about this to my trainer, to, you know, I need to talk about this to my to my teammates as well. That's not happening. They don't know what concussion looks like. Most of the people in my boxing gym didn't know what concussion looked like. I was the only one. I had to tell people, I think I have concussion, for anybody to kind of take it seriously. And that is a real problem. If people don't, these are, these are symptoms that can only be reported by people who have the condition. If you don't know what you're looking for, you can't report, you can't be safe. And the incentives to keep fighting are just so great, aren't they? They are. I think one of the things is, like, it's a very macho sport. It is a kind of sport where every where you're not supposed to show weakness because weakness means you will you'll fail in the ring. And that is, that's a real problem because an injury is, it, it, like, it's really important to be able to say if you're injured, I don't think I can continue. It's dangerous for me to continue. But boxing's all about, like, keep going, keep going, push through the pain, you know, and... I mean, that's a social thing, a cultural thing, but that's actually really important. We need, like, dismantling those ideas about, like, what strength is and what success is and winning is, is one of the ways that we help people pay attention to their safety. So we prevent things like this from happening again. Well, after the count, the death of Davy Brown is out now through Penguin and, uh, I oh, just one. Sorry, Steph. Um, can you please give our love to Jeff? And also, just how how are you both? I mean, I, I as Jeff, I think it would be in his element right now, given that this social distancing is happening. Are we correct in that? Well, I mean, he he definitely likes working from home. Yeah. But um, I we are both finding actually that in the middle of a world crisis, that it's very difficult being in different cities. I'm still in Sydney. He's back in Melbourne now. Mm. So. Um, too much we'll social distance. At, too much social distance. Yeah. Right. So I think we'll be looking at remedying that soon. But um, I'm I'm sure he would if he was the kind of person who would ever say pass on my love. I'm sure he would. <laughs> yes, we well, pass on our love. <laughs> well, after the count, the death of Davy Brown. Uh, you can catch through Penguin. We've been lucky to speak with its author Stephanie Convery. Thanks so much, Steph. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Well, it's now time for the inaugural Breakfasters Talent Show. Hit so we the don't, we don't music. Hit oh. the cue music. There is no cue music. <laughs> we don't have Breakfasters live this week because of social distancing, and we're not having any uh, yep. guests in the studio. Basically, so here we are to entertain you. Mm. Um, we've all come in with a talent. Do you, maybe we could start with revealing what our talents are. Elizabeth, what's yours? Okay, so um, I I got the call yesterday at like four o'clock. Can mm. you fill in tomorrow? Yeah. And then Geraldine texted me saying we're having a talent show. You have to turn up with a talent. <laughs> and um, and I I texted her and said, oh, I'll bring my drum kit in because I used to drum. And um, I don't so anymore. This is probably something that a lot of listeners didn't know about you. Yeah, I used to be a drummer, and uh, but I haven't actually drummed for fifteen years, and I cannot remember what happened to my kit either. So uh, I said to you guys, I'll bring in. 
recorded material of me drumming. Oh, yeah. So, so it's an, I used to have a talent show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I don't have any and, – and it actually made me think I need to get some hobbies mm. because I don't currently have a hobby where well, I'm learning anything. Well, maybe. people are using this quarantine phase to really amp up the, yeah. the hobby development. Yeah. 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 Hello. Yeah, that's right. So that was, um, me. That was my drumming talent. Yeah. Did you take lessons and everything or did you just – No. So what happened was um, my sister and her friend Tanya – had a band and they were playing for like 18 months and their drummer didn't want to be in the band anymore and I said I want to be in the band and um but I didn't know how to drum so and I had eight weeks until the first gig with them so I, I taught myself I took a couple of lessons with Claire Moore the drummer yeah and yeah then I just drummed for four years in this band so I don't know like yeah, I'll play this song. Yeah, let's. Well, start. I do it now. Yeah, yeah. Or, let's... What, or, but I think I think you should do your talents, and then I'll finish with this song. Why don't we do that? Oh, you reckon? Because it's you like reckon a... you're the headline act for <laughs> the talent show. <laughs> it's a three and a half three and a half minute song, and I think it's going to break the momentum of this incredible segment. Oh, okay, three mm. and a half minutes, radio. <laughs> yeah. So you you talk about your talents. <laughs> uh, well, I've. Um, <clears throat> I've um, gone into musical comedy, uh, even though I can't sing, and I've written a, um, a song parody. Um, now, obviously, the obvious choice for everyone has been uh, Red I Gums. Only, yeah. um, I was only 19, but um, I did get word from the lead singer from Red Gum that he's not into it. He's pissed off. <laughs> he's really pissed off. <laughs> Stop changing the lyrics to my song. Um so I've um, I've changed the lyrics to um, "Proud Mary." If anyone knows that oh, song, oh, um, oh yeah, we all know that song. Yep. Sorry, what are you writing down? Just the lyrics to "Proud Mary." <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is your foray into mm, musical comedy. Yeah. You satirising COVID nineteen pandemic through the gift of song. Yep. <laughs> and satire uh, appropriating. Proud Mary. Yeah. Credence Clearwater Revival's classic song. Yeah. Also, um, Ike and Tina Turner. Mm, they covered it, yeah. Mm. They did an incredible version, for yeah, sure. I, I love, I love no. their version. Anyway, this is my yeah. butchered version. Um, I was hoping that someone throughout the show could have um, messaged in to say that they would love to sing, um, but that hasn't happened. So <clears throat> this is on you, listeners. <laughs> Um, so it goes, have a good job in the city. Now I've got to keep everyone at bay. At least I'll continue with my beekeeping. Love my bees, I've named the Queen Bee Lynn. Beehive, keep on humming. <laughs> Proud honey in my tongue. <laughs> the bees are buzzing. Buzzing, buzzing with honey to deliver. <laughs> what? Um, there's more. <laughs> Is there? It's a big, been a big day. Need to decide what's for breakfast. <laughs> I could only get one can of baked beans, but as well as my bees, I have a little kitty. She helps me to keep the apartment clean. Cat's tongue keep on licking. Bees, honey, keep on sticking. You want me to go on? Yeah, go on, yeah. yeah. The bees are buzzing. Buzzing. 
with honey to deliver. <laughs> and that goes again. Oh. The final. <laughs> yeah, the final verse, please. If you need honey, I deliver. But if it smells like cat, then please forgive. I have a kitty who likes to lick the honey. Cats can't get the virus, so I'm sure you will live. <laughs> and then back to the chorus. <laughs> oh, can you do the chorus again? Come on. Yeah. Um, cat's tongue keep on licking. Bees, honey, keep on sticking. The bees are buzzing, 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 honey to deliver. I was very proud. That is fantastic. I can't believe it. If anyone wants the lyrics and wants to turn it into a song, like if you're a musician and you you want it, Mm. feel free to. You could perform at Isol Aid tomorrow. <laughs> you could be one of the performers in the twenty yeah, minutes. If one of the uh, if one of the performers from Isol Aid wants to use that song, the thirty six hour music festival online. Hit, hit oh, yeah. me up. I just never realised that Crin's Clearwater Revival would be adapted to the lyrics. Can't get, cats can't get the virus. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Oh man! Okay. I love the line. Love my bees. I've named the queen bee Lynn. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, Welcome, everybody, and also apologies. But no, no apologies. No, don't apologise. Um, Jez, you asked me yesterday if I'd, I... I have no discernible skills, by the way. I, uh, you know, maybe I can... Yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah, well, that's what You're a writer. Yeah. Well, anyway, you asked me to write a top ten list. So the, you, used, you used to do this. This is this used to be your job. One of your yeah, part yeah, of your yeah. Job. It, it, yeah, it, can, it continues to be a feature mm. of yeah my life. Um, so he, here is the top ten ways Melbourne is dealing with coronavirus. Great. All right, you ready? Okay, I'd ask for a drum roll, but uh, Elizabeth's retired <laughs> from that. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Number ten. Jesus. All right. Uh, okay, top ten ways Melbourne is dealing with coronavirus. Number ten, skipping girl is using her vinegar to disinfect the rope. Yes. All right. Excellent. Number nine, the Coles radio playlist now just consists of fever and I predict a riot on repeat. <laughs> uh, number eight, guaranteed new strategy to avoid ticket inspectors. Number seven, at the MCG on Boxing Day, the Australian cricket team will instead tamper the ball with baby wipes. <laughs> Number six, for those who test positive after attending Crown Casino, doctors are offering double or nothing. <laughs> Number five, AFL umpires are practising running backwards from their elderly relatives. Uh, <laughs> Number four, with the cancellation of live music, drummers will use the spare time to learn an instrument. That's you. <laughs> uh, number three, uh, follow Docklands, which has practised social distancing for decades. Uh, number two, to prevent another outbreak, the MasterChef reboot has removed Live Bat from its first mystery box. <laughs> and the number one way Melbourne is dealing with coronavirus, the suburb Flemington now starts with a PH. And that's that. <laughs> All right. That's very good. Beautiful what work, a great Daniel. talent show. Oh, my God, this is Fantastic. All right. So this is um, this is my talent. So this is me drumming uh, like 16 years ago. Great. This will take us out to the end of the it show. Will, actually. Sweet. So this is a song called I Am Having a Nervous Breakdown Right Now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.